0: Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We thank you for your word. We ask for your help in understanding it, believing it, and doing it today. As we meditate on these words of your son, of the Christ, our Savior, help us to internalize them. So that we go out from here, not only as hearers, but also as doers of your word. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Please be seated. O sacred head, now wounded, is a good hymn for us to sing before this sermon. "'Tis I deserve thy place," is one of the lines in that hymn. We deserved Christ's place. He did not deserve the cross. That was what we deserved. But he took our place as our substitute. And that's one of the main themes of today's passage. The trial of Jesus here in John 18, which culminates in his crucifixion later on in the gospel, was really two separate trials. One was Jewish and the other Roman. We looked at the Jewish portion a couple weeks ago, and now we look at the Roman portion. And the reason for the two trials is that the Jews were unable legally to carry out crucifixions. And the crucifixion of Jesus is what the high priest and the rest of the Jews wanted. The Jewish Sanhedrin probably could have pulled off a vigilante stoning of Jesus. After all, that's what they did to Stephen just a few months later. They could have killed Jesus on their own and probably gotten away with it if they had been willing to settle for something other than a crucifixion. But the high priest, the Jewish people, didn't just want Jesus dead. They wanted him cursed to the max. Deuteronomy 21 says that everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed, and that is cursed by God. If Jesus is crucified, then anyone who knows his Old Testament is going to know that surely this... Man, they're going to conclude that surely this would-be Messiah Jesus, rather than being the Messiah, is an accursed imposter. But what we saw in the first part of John 18, and you can open your Bibles there to John 18. We're going to walk through those 13 verses I read. What we saw in the first part of John 18 is is still true in the last part of the chapter. Jesus is in complete control of the whole situation. At no point does he lose control. In verses 28 to 32, as dawn breaks and Christ is led to Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, the control of Lord Jesus continues to be on display. Verse 28 says, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, this Gentile place where Pilate and a bunch of Romans were, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So John's comment that it was early in the morning, this new day is dawning, it doesn't merely give us the the time of day, the temporal context. More importantly, it gives us the cosmological context. The new day that is dawning is the day of Christ's victory over the world, over the darkness, over the powers in the air, the principalities. Notice how John focuses our attention on-the-scenes irony. There's a lot of irony, actually. The Jews are taking great care to be ritually, ritually pure during the Passover by not entering into the Gentile praetorium. And yet, at the same time, they are ushering in the true Passover, the fulfillment of Passover, by leading Jesus into this Gentile praetorium to be slaughtered as the Passover lamb. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. That's their response to, what, you know, what's the charge here? Pilate is trying to establish a semblance, some kind of semblance of justice by forcing the Jews to name their specific accusation against Jesus. But, but these, these brazen and audacious Jews are unfazed by Pilate. They'll have none of Pilate's talk of a fair trial. That'll just get in the way. Instead, They'll continue to declare that Jesus is guilty without evidence and even without a specific charge. Indeed, their proof that Jesus is an evildoer in verse 30 is simply that they brought him to Pilate. That's that's the evidence. Pilate, would we have delivered him over to you if he hadn't done anything wrong? Come on. Would we have demanded the death of an innocent man? Look at how many of us there are, Pilate. Are you suggesting that all of us might be misguided? How could so many of God's people agree that a man is guilty and be wrong? See, everyone in this crowd, remember, too, is an upstanding citizen and a covenant member in good standing. He's leading people astray, Pilate. He must be done away with. Jesus, you see is obviously guilty and we even know what his penalty should be let's skip the formalities of a fair trial and get to the condemnation of a known sinner understanding the social and spiritual dynamics at play in this situation is helpful even critical to understanding how much so much of the fallen world works and how our own hearts work Verse 31, then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. So he's not impressed. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So there in verse 32, John inserts a brief Theological interpretation of the result of the exchange between Pilate and the Jewish authorities. So, so remember, in this exchange, Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. Not out of any goodness in his heart. But he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't really see that it's called for. And the Jews are unable to crucify Jesus. But according to verse 32, the thing that Pilate doesn't want to do and the thing that the Jews cannot legally do is the very thing that is going to happen. Why? The text tells us. So that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke. The Lord Jesus is sovereign. He carries everything out according to the counsel of his will. In other words, John is telling us that Jesus is even in control of the kind of death he will die. Not just that he will die, not just that he will die by the hands of these Romans and Jews working together, but that he will die by crucifixion. Sinful humanity is unwittingly doing the bidding of the king. King Jesus is in control. And Pilate is actually the one on trial, as we'll see. Christ, the king, King Jesus, is holding court. He's rendering judgment. He's orchestrating history. He's heading to the cross on his own Authority. And in so doing, he's preparing a place, an eternal place, for those who would believe in him. Well, Pilate's certainly in over his head politically, but worse than that, he's spiritually blind, leading to his confusion and frustration. He's he's looking at the truth in the flesh, truth in the flesh but he doesn't recognize him as truth. You see, Pilate's bedrock problem is that he is of this world. He is a son of this world. He has no spiritual life in him whatsoever. He possesses not one ounce of heavenly mindedness. And so this leads to his confusion and his exasperation because Jesus isn't of this world. So even though he doesn't want to really kill Jesus, Pilate turns out to be just as blind, just as spiritually bankrupt as the Jews who will cry, Crucify him! Spiritual blindness can take a lot of different forms. A dark heart can manifest itself in a multitude of ways. You know, we, we expect unbelievers like Pilate. We expect the heathen nations. To prove that they have no light. But sometimes the most intense forms of darkness reside. In the hearts of God's covenant people. As is the case here. In John 18. Pilate tries to get the upper hand as the interrogator in verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate incredulously, and even maybe sarcastically, asks Jesus whether he is the Jewish king. Now think about that. Of course, as as far as Pilate is concerned, Jesus obviously isn't any sort of king at all. Kings don't find themselves in this kind of situation. The you is emphatic in the Greek. Are you, are you the king of the Jews? So he's trying to get the upper hand here. After all, he's the, he's the ruler in this situation, Pilate. But Jesus turns the tables on him in verse 34. Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? In other words, was that, was that question your idea? Or are the Jews manipulating you into doing their bidding? Are you your own man, Pilate? Or are you being controlled by the Jews that are supposedly... Under your rule. Just as Jesus did with the high priest, Jesus has reversed the roles. Now Jesus is the interrogator and Pilate is the accused. This this happened with Annas as well. Pilate's authority is, is being undermined being challenged by these probing counter-questions of Jesus. And this is how things work, oftentimes, in God's economy. Things tend to get reversed. The least are the greatest. The first are the last. The meek inherit the earth. The hungry and the thirsty are the most satisfied. The poor are rich. The weak are strong. The unlearned are wise. The afflicted are filled up with joy. Those who hate their lives find true life. And the greatest ruler is the greatest servant. In verse 34, the beaten, bound, and defenseless Christ is reigning. He's holding court on Pilate. Ultimately, everyone except Christ Jesus is on trial. Pilate, the high priest, Annas, the Roman Empire, Jews, the Gentiles, the Sanhedrin, and even us. All of humanity. Jesus is innocent and all of humanity stands guilty before God. At the end of the day, there's only one innocent Man. Now, Jesus' question had implicitly associated Pilate with the Jews. He, he implicitly accused Pilate of, of doing their bidding, remember. So in verse 35, Pilate tries to disassociate himself with the Jews. He counters Jesus by reversing the suggested connection. After all, Jesus is... An actual Jew. So he said, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. The implication there is probably not the king, right? What have you done, he asks. So, so what Pilate is doing here, he's, he's, he's saying, I'm not a Jew. You're the Jew, and let's... Be clear, you're the one on trial. You're the one being charged. What have you done? But Jesus sees through Pilate's smokescreen and he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, which is a commentary on Peter. He's still thinking worldly uh, in the garden a few hours earlier. So that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate had tried unsuccessfully to to disassociate himself from the Jews who were using him, clearly. And now Jesus disassociates himself from the world. But this disassociation is true. When Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world, World, he doesn't mean my kingdom is spiritual rather than physical. Nor does he mean my kingdom is future rather than present. He also doesn't mean my kingdom exists in heaven rather than on earth. Christ's kingdom is both spiritual and physical. It encompasses everything. It's both present and physical. It exists in heaven and on earth. The kingdom of God is not limited to our hearts or to heaven. It's comprehensive. Jesus reigns over everything, everywhere, all the time, including this world. He is king, remember, of both heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him in both realms. He's even even reigning while he's being beaten, while he's bound, while he's being arrested and arraigned. He rules over everything seen and unseen. This world and all of its earthly kingdoms are a subset of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. So what does Jesus mean? when he says my kingdom is not of this world what he means that the source of this kingdom is heaven rather than earth his kingdom is not grounded in this world his kingdom is not grounded in the fallen portion of creation it's not established the same way kingdoms of this world are it's nature its its essence and its authority originate in heaven rather than on earth. The the kingdom and kingship of Christ are in this world, but not of this world. In a similar way, as a follower of Christ, you are in this world, but not of this world. In that way, you and we are reflect, image, the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is in this world, but not of this world. Our text highlights the contrast between Jesus, the heavenly-minded ruler, and Pilate, the earthly-minded ruler. And these two men, and these two rulers we see two completely different approaches to life. The earthly-minded work for earthly glory. The heavenly-minded give up earthly glory. The earthly-minded see no further than this world, what we can see. The heavenly-minded store up treasures and glory in the world to come. The earthly-minded cannot see beyond the levers of earthly power. The heavenly minded see the kingdom of God as the foundational reality underneath all things and the transcendent reality above all things. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If you're reading a new King James Bible, you'll notice that rightly is sort of italicized. It's not in the text. It's added. It's an interpretation. Probably right, but one possible interpretation is Jesus is being ambiguous. You say that I am a king, and he's not really directly answering whether he's right or wrong. Perhaps because he can't say no, because he is a king, but he can't say yes, because Pilate has no idea what kind of king he is, and so it would really be almost a miscommunication to say yes. But he, he does seem to be somewhat affirming of what Pilate says. So the, the New King James interpretation is is probably on to something. He's probably affirming, yes, you you say that I'm a king, and it's true, but he goes on to explain what kind of kingdom he's talking about here. The Son of God came from heaven to earth to establish a heavenly kingdom here. Pilate can't get that. But but Jesus says it anyway. That's why I was born, he says. That's why I came into this fallen, broken world. That's the gospel truth, Jesus says. And I bear witness to it. Those on the side of truth, those on the side of truth believe what Jesus is saying here. Those who recognize that there is a heavenly kingdom hear his voice and they love the truth. The world, and sometimes our own hearts, we want a different kind of Savior. The world needs a savior from heaven, but often we prefer earthly saviors. Often we, and always the world, prefer saviors who satiate our desires and confirm our biases. The world prefers economic saviors, political saviors. It idolizes power and prestige and worldly achievements, earthly triumphs. Do you remember what happened after Christ fed the 5,000? They ate, they were grateful, and then they followed him, right? They're followers of Jesus. He goes across the water and they, they, fought, they, they, they go where he is. It took some work, dedication, right? Right? And when they get there, they, they, what are they asking for? Can you give us more bread? Can you feed us the way Moses fed our fathers? That was great. Do that again. We'll keep following you. But it turns out they just wanted earthly bread. Jesus wanted to give them heavenly bread. All they wanted was the earthly bread. Earthly bread satisfies temporarily. Heavenly bread satisfies eternally. So Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never get hungry. And as soon as Jesus says this, what happens? They stopped following him. They went back to looking for maybe a savior, a messiah, who would satisfy their worldly cravings. They preferred earthly lusts over eternal life. For some, God is just a vending machine. They put in $1.50, and if the machine doesn't produce something to satisfy their longings, they shake it, they bump it, they tilt it, they kick it, and eventually... walk away many followers of jesus were like this in in the gospels in john and many are like this today what do you want from your savior what kind of messiah are you expecting do you want earthly bread or heavenly bread what do you crave most In the first part of verse 38, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? He seems a little flustered at this point. But while we can't psychologize too much on what he's thinking and meaning, we can conclude that he asks the wrong question. What should he have asked? Truth is not a what, it is a who. Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. So ironically, Pilate addressed his question to the person who is the answer to the question. A spiritually dead man cannot see the truth even when it's staring him right in the eyes. Pilate can't see or accept the truth because he's a natural man. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, The natural man, which means the spiritually dead man, the unregenerate man, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Pilate failed to know the truth and so it never set him free. Well, the negotiations and gerrymandering ratchet up in verses 38 to 40. So let's pick up where we left off, right there in the middle of verse 38. And when he, that's, that is Pilate, Had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I love how Pilate mocks the Jews there in verse 39 when he asks them, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? (laughs) I bet that really chafed him. Pilate forces them to acknowledge the title. In essence, he forces them to say, No, we do not want you to release are the king of the Jews, as you put it. It's fitting that Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews as their king because what's the context here? As we're reminded yet again in verse 39, the context is Passover. We we saw that at the beginning of the passage, and here again at the end of the passage, the word Passover is used. That's important. And at Passover, the Jews celebrated their deliverance from an evil Gentile, if you will, king. The Egyptian Pharaoh. That's what Passover was about. So think about what's going on here in John 18. The king who freed Israel from the evil Egyptian king was God himself. God was their redeemer, their redeeming king and now they're wanting to crucify him they're wanting to crucify the king who rescued them from the evil king at the first Passover soon in John nineteen 15, we'll even see them declaring that Caesar of Rome is the only true king Not Jesus. It's important that the prisoner is called Barabbas or Bar-Abbas. Barabbas is not a personal name. We don't know Barabbas' first name. We only know his surname or his family name, if you will. Bar-Abbas Means son of Abba, which means son, a son of a father. Abba means father. So this man's name, father's name was Abba. So he was whatever his first name was, son of Abba. We don't know his first name though. Family names or surnames were used to distinguish between men who bore the same personal name. That's why some scholars going all the way back to the early church have thought that Barabbas' first name must have been Jesus. He's being called Barabbas to distinguish him from Jesus of Nazareth. So we have two Jesuses here. One is Barabbas, one is... The Christ. Now we can't know that for sure, but it actually, um, that view made its way into some of the early manuscripts even. Instead of just Barabbas, it says Jesus Barabbas. But we do know that Barabbas means a son of a father. That's kind of the literal meaning of that name a son of a father. What this means is that the Jews have chosen a son of a father over the son of the father. If, they're, if both of their personal names were Jesus, they chose Jesus, a son of a father, over Jesus, the son of the father. It's also important that Barabbas is called a robber. It's just kind of Seems like it's tacked on at the end there, right? By the way, he was a robber. End of pericope, end of chapter, end of passage. Robber is one of the key titles that Jesus contrasts with the good shepherd earlier in John's gospel. In John 10, Jesus said that the thief and the robber come only to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's right. Jesus also said that he is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He gives life to the sheep rather than taking it away. And he gives this life by laying his life down for them. He's the opposite of a thief and a robber. So by choosing the robber, Instead of the good shepherd, the Jews have chosen for themselves death and destruction. They've submitted themselves to being stolen and killed and destroyed. Not by Barabbas, but by the devil, the true thief and robber. This hate filled incident recorded at the end of John 18 reveals a lot of things, but most of all, it reveals the depths of God's love for us, his people. Jesus was arrested, he was put on trial, he was bound. Not by the powers that be, primarily, but by his own kingly power. That can only make sense if you believe the gospel. That his kingly power led him to a cross. He gave the world, the world of Jews and Gentiles, permission to bind him and ultimately to crucify him so that they could be free from their bondage to sin and death. As the world was busy hating God's son, God, through his son, was busy expressing his love for the world. The world's expression of hate was at the same time God's expression of Of love. This passage has shown us that the impending crucifixion of Jesus is God's loving sacrifice for the world. We see again and again that even while suffering at the hands of those he created, Jesus is always in complete control. He's dictating the terms. He's leading the interrogations. He's deciding on the when, where, and how of his own death. Jesus is the true king. He's also the answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? The title of today's sermon in your bulletin highlights the two main theological themes in our passage. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our substitute. The Passover lamb was a sacrifice that atoned for sin. And every animal sacrifice in the Old Covenant, not just the Passover, involved substituting the animal for the person or persons offering the sacrifice. Animals were killed in place of people. They were killed as a substitute for the people. And both of these ideas, sacrifice and substitute, are prominent in our text And in closing, we'll look at each one briefly. First, Christ is our Passover sacrifice, our Passover lamb. This is not a new idea, of course, but the passage highlights it. The Passover context is established in the very first verse, verse 28, and then at the end, the second to the last verse, verse 39. The end of verse 28 says that the Jews didn't enter the praetorium because they didn't want to defile themselves during Passover, a week-long feast. We already noted the theological irony here. The Jews are avoiding the defilement by not entering into the place where they send the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrificial Passover lamb. The meaning of the Jewish Passover was forever changed, forever transformed during Passover in A.D. 30. On the Friday of that Passover week, on April 7th, A.D. 30, God slaughtered his son. He slaughtered his lamb. And in so doing, he made the final and all-fulfilling Passover sacrifice for the sin of the world. The fulfillment of the Passover meal is what we do every week toward the end of our service, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant meal that declares the redemptive sacrifice of God's Son. It proclaims it. It's become common, common, especially in recent years, for Christians to reenact Passover, the, the, the Passover meal, Seder, during Passover. Uh, there's nothing, you know, high handed sin about that or anything, but there are a couple problems with, with doing this. One is that the rituals and ceremonies that, that people tend to use when they do this don't come from the Bible but from Jewish traditions written centuries after Christ. But the main problem is that the Passover meal came to an end. It's been fulfilled in Christ and his new covenant meal. In Christ and his supper, you get the Passover and a whole lot more. Second and finally... Christ is our substitute if you believe in Jesus he took your place on the cross and received the penalty for your sins that you deserved in other words he became your penal substitute the substitute who paid the penalty of your sin penal has to do with Penalty. The last two verses of our passage involved the long-standing Jewish custom of releasing a prisoner who had been found guilty and was sentenced to death. So Brabus was, was going to be crucified by the Romans. And this, this custom probably intended to depict the redemptive nature of the Exodus event. Sort of the, the free Grace of God and delivering people, rescuing people, freeing people from bondage the scene includes, concludes with, with subtle brilliance there in verse 40, I want you to look at that verse with me one more time Then they all cried again saying not this man but Barabbas now Barabbas was a robber the main story here is not that the Jews chose a robber instead of the good shepherd. The main story is that God's son, the good shepherd, took the place of the robber. He died the death of a convicted criminal. He became Barabbas' substitute. Now, we have no evidence that, that he became Barabbas' spiritual substitute, that Barabbas converted and became a disciple of Christ. But physically, he became Barabbas' substitute. That's the image here that we're supposed to see. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place, but I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved that the wrath of God should be poured upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He he was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing left for me but his heaven. End quote. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Luther called that the great exchange, the great substitution we could call it. 1 Peter 2:24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Fellow saints, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we were all Barabbases. But now, because of Christ's substitutionary atonement, because Christ paid the penalty, your penalty, my penalty, on the cross. We are God's children. And those who put their trust in Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice become eternal sons and daughters of the Father. Let's give thanks. Father, we are thankful for this good news. The good news that Jesus has become our, our lamb, the Passover lamb, the sacrifice that pays the penalty. He became our substitute. We thank you for saving us through this gospel. Increase our faith in it. Give us hearts that love it and believe it and live according to it, even this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.